Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Dave Itzkoff is a widely respected reporter at the New York Times, where he covers film, television, theater, music, and popular culture. Currently based somewhere on the island of Manhattan, where he's earned a large following on Twitter for his sharp and comedic posts, Itzkoff has spent the last few years writing his compelling and comprehensive biography of the late, multi-award-winning American comedian and actor Robin Williams. The revelatory account is called Robin, and it's out now via Henry Holt and Company. And so, Dave and I had a nice conversation recently about his interactions with Robin Williams and his friends and family, why he is so good at Twitter, why comedy is constantly under attack but also misused as a discursive shield these days, the great insight his book offers about Robin Williams' health in his final days, and much more. With in-kind support from Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf, and Planet Bean Coffee in Guelph, Granddad's Donuts in Hamilton, and Planet of Sound locations in Ottawa and Toronto, and of course, flexible monthly pledges by listeners like you at patreon.com slash Control. this is the 402nd episode of Creative Control, featuring Dave Itzkoff with your host, me, Vish Khanna. Hi, Dave. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for uh, having me over today. Oh, it's uh, lovely to have you in Canadian airspace. Uh, have you done much press in Canada for your for your book? <laughs> yeah, I've talked to a few. It's 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 strange to have to pronounce color with the word with the letter U, but I'm <laughs> I'm I'm adapting. <laughs> well, I want to uh, first of all, I, as I often ask my guests, where in the world are you today? Uh, I'm actually in uh, New York in my apartment in Manhattan. Nice, nice. And how long have you been in New York? I lived in New York uh, essentially my whole life. I was born here, uh, went away for college, and then came right back as soon as it was over. So uh, it's all it's all that I know and all that I understand. Right, and so you you like it clearly. You haven't left. You haven't felt uh, oppressed by the people, by the humanity. You've stayed put. <laughs> no, my wife and I every once in a while will will fantasize about what would it be like if we tried to move to Los Angeles 
but uh, we've we've never actually taken the plunge, and now we have a three year old son, so I think uh, I think we're pretty much anchored here. Well, congratulations on your family. That's great. I, I have a couple of kids too. We live outside of Toronto, like about an hour, and it's I think it's better. Like, have you ever contemplated living in a place like Connecticut? I know that's a that's a common thing that people do. I don't know if we could swing it. I think we'd uh, I, th- I think we probably would find the pace a, a little too relaxed and and then we would just kind of drift off into oblivion i think we need we need a certain amount of just agitation and and frenzy (laughs) in in our in our day-to-day existence you clearly haven't been to certain parts of connecticut i think that's there (laughs) (laughs) now i I, i'm very uh, happy to speak with you generally because i'm a fan of yours and i I also oh you're welcome and i i this book is remarkable and revelatory this book about robin williams let's begin with uh, how you began how did you begin this process of writing a book about Robin Williams? Well, I uh, had written about Robin on a few different occasions uh, in my capacity as a, a reporter for the New York Times, uh, a few different uh, profiles and, and interviews. And, and the longest one was uh, around 2009 when he was uh, going out on the road for what would become his last uh, stand-up tour, which he called – uh, weapons of self-destruction, and I had spent some time with him on on that trip, and uh, you know, at least had a kind of introduction to some people in his world. Uh, he had at one point introduced me to his son uh, Zach, who uh, ended up participating in the story, but I just kind of knew uh, peripherally. And you know, several months after his death, and as we started, con- you know, just contemplating the idea of of writing a book. Uh, I, you know, I reached out to different people in his world, including Zach, including his uh, managers, uh, his publicists who I'd worked with, and just to sort of say this is an idea that we are thinking about and how would people feel and, you know, not looking for uh, either an explicit endorsement or a guarantee that anybody would participate, but just kind of feeling people out, and we certainly at least got – um you know, the responses that were in- encouraging or at least people said, you know, this is something that we would feel okay with. So that that was, uh, you know, at least a, a encouraging way to start. Uh, but then after that, it was about, I would say, a year to a year and a half of just reaching out to people, arranging interviews, looking for sources. Uh, there was a period where Robin's family was sort of enmeshed in a kind of just a, a legal conflict over his estate, and that prevented me from, you know, talking directly to any family members while that was going on. So talking to people in other capacities of his life, other people from earlier in his life, uh, traveling up to Boston University where he had archived uh, a lot of personal papers and correspondence, and then finally, you know, getting to family members and 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 going from there. Now you had you prior to this 2009 encounter where you spend a fair amount of time with Robin you had interviewed him before right Yeah I mean that was the the 2009 piece was really the longest and and other interviews sort of followed from that I think the only previous interview I had done at that point was uh for a piece about uh the Bobcat Goldthwait movie World's Greatest Dad that Robin had starred in and that was just like a a phone interview with Robin which was interesting it was very you know, it was the first time I'd really had any kind of conversation with him, and it was so subdued and and very very low key in a way that I didn't necessarily expect him to be, just based on his his work and, of course, how he uh, comported himself on screen. 
And then, you know, I, I think even at that point, he knew that I was going to come on the road with him. I think he, I, I, I remember him making a kind of offhand reference in that conversation to the fact that we were going to get to see each other in person. And then, uh, you know, that then I went on the road with him for that tour for a few days. And and there I got a lot of time with him and in all different settings, you know, hotel room, dressing room, uh, on a private plane. And, uh, you know, he was very... Uh, open about a lot of things that he had been through in uh, up to that point in his life. The whole the whole tour was about essentially the experience of him falling off the wagon and and going into rehab to uh, get to get sober from a, a relapse into alcoholism, uh, about a divorce that he had just had, and also about having open heart surgery and recovering from that. Yeah. Um, so the fact that that was already sort of in the material of the show. Uh, you know, he was very open just about talking about it one-on-one, really sort of difficult hardships that he had been through. And he was just so candid about all of it, which I was really surprised by. Yeah, you, you've expressed surprise a, a couple of times in, in that answer because I think we know, <laughs> those of us who know Robin Williams as a from afar, we think of him as this bigger-than-life, open, no-holes-barred personality. But did you, you, you seem to have discovered that he actually was a pretty private, introspective guy, right? Yeah, I think that there were definitely parts about his life that, you know, he did not share easily or, or readily. I, I mean, on the on the one hand, you know, I think just, just from, you know, talking to, I don't know, you know, celebrities, performers, those kinds of people, they tend, you know, they, usually when you get an interview with them, they, the, the focus is often on whatever project they're doing, whatever they're promoting. You get to know them uh, a little bit as a person, and then the uh, the encounter or the transaction is is over. As a reporter, you often have a kind of you, you make an effort to try to uh, if if there's something else going on in their life that people are aware of or some recent controversy that they've been uh, enmeshed in, and you try to ask about that, and maybe they'll answer, and maybe they won't. Uh, there's often a little bit of uh, you know anxiety involved in the in those kinds of uh, mm-hmm. interactions, but in in this case. There wasn't any uh, feeling like that, that, you know, he really seemed very sort of eager to get some of this stuff off of his chest, was very open about it. But you're right that certainly in the course of talking to other people for the book and going all the way back to the beginning of his life and his origins and his upbringing, there were always, I think everybody who got to know him felt like they knew parts of him. They, They were aware of certain things about him. They engage with him in certain ways, but that they didn't somehow get all of him, that, that he withheld just certain aspects of his life, not necessarily secrets, but just engage with people in certain ways, and other people didn't get to see the sort of full Robin. Nobody nobody felt like they did. On some level, this is true of most of us, isn't it? <laughs> you know, we, we put a little bit of ourselves out into the world to our friends, our family, but, you know, we, we all have our own lives, and I think Robin... When you're a celebrity, that can be more difficult. But I think he valued that. My sense from your book is that he really valued his own time, his his time on his own to kind of just ruminate and think about things. I think that's definitely true. I, it was interesting, though, even to hear from you know people that he knew intimately, whether you know his own children or his wives, people who felt like I mean, you know, his his wife tells a story in the book about. Uh, the very first time that, that she met him when he was tending bar at the Holy City Zoo in San Francisco and uh, he 
basically put on a French accent for her and pretended the whole night <laughs> to be a Frenchman. And it wasn't until long into the night, and I think after she dropped him off at his home, that she realized that this was all uh, a put on. And I, th- I think, you know, it's on the one hand, it's just a story, but it's also I think there's something kind of uh, symbolic or significant about that. That all, uh, on some level, Robin, I think, was always trying to keep his his core and his, you know his whoever he was at heart uh, a little bit concealed from people or just defending it preemptively from people that he didn't he worried about I think being judged that if he put himself out there honestly as himself and people rejected that that he would find that very hurtful so in some ways it was easier to uh, shield himself this way well one of the things I was really struck by by your book is just how dynamic a person he was like based on your you know in interviews and your investigation like he I want to try to capture as much of this as I can without giving away too much of the book because I urge people (laughs) to read this very compelling book but can you talk a little bit about his upbringing uh because I that surprised me uh his relationship with his parents uh and, and then the fact that you know he went to very seriously went you know studied acting I think we some of us know Robin as Oscar winner uh, Robin Williams. It's not a surprise that he has this acting background, but then when he exploded, much like Steve Martin, like I, I, I had kind of neglected the fact that he was such a huge stand-up star, and I feel like a lot of his early upbringing and his acting and his relationship with his parents, I feel like that informed what he became and 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 the serious side of him and the and the funny side of him. Can you? capture that a little bit uh, right now can you just sort of elaborate oh, yeah. upon that? Uh, uh, sure yeah. sure no, i th- I, th- I, th- I mean i think you're you're what you say is totally apt and i think i think once you even understand the upbringing in his parents that it's almost it's it's like the rosetta stone you sort of understand exactly why he sort of turned out the way that he did because uh a lot of comedians i, I think often we imagine them coming from you know, hardship and, and upbringings where there was some kind of uh, struggle. I, I mean, I, you know, the classic example I always point to is somebody like Richard Pryor, who was mm-hmm. you know, literally raised in the, the brothels of uh, Peoria, Illinois. And that was not Robin's uh, experience at all, that his family was uh, very wealthy and, and privileged. And, uh, you know, his father uh, worked primarily as a, an executive for Ford and, and, you know, did well by that. And the family had to travel a lot between uh, Illinois and Michigan, depending on uh, where the company needed him mm-hmm, at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, very, and, you know, very nomadic. Was, they moved around a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So on the one hand, you know, it was very hard, especially for as a kid. You know, Robin didn't put roots down for very long. Was never in any one place for more than a couple of years. Uh, he often had friends wherever he went, but personally, I think he felt very lonely and isolated because, on the one hand, his father was traveling quite a bit for work. He had a kind of uh, reserved demeanor. He was a, a World War II veteran and, you know, the greatest generation. Uh, his mother was descended from, I mean, literal Southern aristocracy that her great-grandfather had been uh, both a senator and a uh, governor of the state of Mississippi. And, uh, but she was very convivial, but also very into uh, social functions and, and high society and activities that related to that. So she was often out on her own as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, Robin would spend a lot of time at home basically by, you know, by himself in these large mansions with way more space than the family needed. In, in one mansion that they lived in uh, outside of Detroit, he basically had the whole attic 
to himself, and he would just use it as a kind of staging ground for his toy soldiers and put on these massive battles and kind of create characters for his soldiers. So that, on the one hand, became a kind of a, a, a dry run for everything he would do in his comedy to develop voices and characters. But I think that feeling of, of, of solitude uh, stayed with him, that, that you know, long after he left that house and well into his adult life, uh, you know, still, as we talked about earlier, still kind of felt isolated from people and still kind of kept, you know, kept it a, a certain rem- at a remove from other people. Yeah. And, and I mean, this led to a certain path he took. I mean, he ended up when he was at school, he was often penniless, almost homeless. He seemed to be. <laughs> is that is that an accurate assessment? It just oh, sure. Seemed, yeah. Sure. I mean, uh, you were talking earlier. I mean, you know, when. There were three different uh, colleges that he attended after uh, high school, and and, you know most most famously he was a student at uh, Juilliard for three years and doing a kind of you know a traditional acting conservatory education. So at that point he's in New York while his family is uh, back in the Bay Area, and he's you know he's on scholarship there. And even though he has uh, a family that he could get money from, he was very reluctant to do so. He was always kind of either borrowing money from other students or literally just like. You know, teachers and administrators would find him in in the school building after hours, just kind of by himself. People would give him meals or lend him money. He had housing. He lived with people, but he also he lived a kind of uh, bohemian existence for yeah. a time. I, I think that was, uh, you know, I think that that was uh, the, the, that that the one year he spent in high school in San Francisco. It was 1969, and uh, it, the tail end of the summer of love. And that, uh, you know, he definitely caught some of that. Well, he was a very theatrical comedian. Um, and I don't, yes. like, I mean, just obsessed with Shakespeare and wanting to be taken seriously on some level. And I don't, like I, I mentioned his Academy Award uh, victory, I suppose. And I mentioned, uh, you mentioned Juilliard there. Can you capture just what an impact he actually had as a stand-up, as a comedian, as a comedic force? Because... I think we kind of forget that, you know, outside of Jonathan Winters, Richard Pryor, these kinds of people, Robin Williams was idiosyncratic. He was a a supernova. No one had really seen anyone like him. Is that fair to say? I think so, that that essentially, you know, he it's funny because he kind of fell into stand up almost by accident that after coming back, after dropping out of Juilliard, coming back to San Francisco and couldn't really sort of easily get into acting work there. But stand up was having a resurgence in the city and that was a path that he could take and he really uh, excelled at and helped pioneer a kind of stand-up that was very different from what people had seen before where it used to be more kind of traditional button down uh, you know a guy in a suit standing in front of a microphone telling you a kind of uh, linear monologue of course his style was nothing like that that it, it there it wasn't necessarily narrative and there didn't have to be a kind of internal logic to it that it could really just jump from bit to bit or character to character with no transition just at at his whim that if he got bored with a a character or suddenly had a a flash of inspiration and wanted to do something else he would just jump from it to the next idea and that's uh, there were other people doing things sort of like that in san francisco when he came into it but Certainly by the time he hit it big in Hollywood and especially at the height of 
Morgan Mindy, you know, he became the sort of archetype of that style. And really after that, nobody else could do it without being perceived as a Robin Williams imitator. Yeah, I'm trying to think of anyone. I mean, I think of Bobcat Goldthwait a little bit. I think of Maria Bamford a little bit. Like, I can't think of too many people that have sort of followed that path, even if they don't mean to. Like, I see I see Robin in <laughs> those people. Do you see his influence sort of permeating the... The, the the contemporary co- comedy world in some way i think it's it, it's interesting I, th- I mean as much as he is uh admired and as much as people sort of uh i think uh celebrate him for what he accomplished i don't think that there is i don't think he had a lot of uh disciples in that way i don't think you see his influence in contemporary comedy in, in quite that way right now that doesn't mean that the uh you know the, the it, it's an ever evolving uh, art form it doesn't mean it can't be sort of uh, rediscovered, but I, I, just because of the nature of what he did, it would be so hard. It, it, it was as much to do with the material as the kind of the pace that he performed it at. I think anybody who sort of tried to emulate it in that way or take inspiration from it, I think people would probably just dismiss it as uh, you know copying him. It would be very hard sure. to do it and not you know to, to do it in your own way and and to get out from under that perception of just being. Uh, you know, ripping him off. But that doesn't mean it can't happen. Well, let me put it another way. Like you say, there are yeah. a few disciples. Do you think his work as a comedian is as appreciated as it should be? I don't know if it's about whether it's appreciated as it should be. I think I think it's I, I mean, I think there are a couple of sets of his a couple of specials that are pretty exemplary that I think certainly stand the test of time. Others that, you know, maybe were uh, enjoyable in their moment, but are maybe too sort of specific and, and haven't aged as well. But it's it's not necessarily about people taking inspiration from it. I think I think what's interesting about those shows is what it you know as as you come to understand his life uh you know what those shows are either saying about him how they go hand in hand with things he was actually experiencing at the time that he's performing those routines and also what he's holding back from people how yeah. it really was i think over the span of his career quite an effort on his part to really put himself out in front of an audience in a sincere and open way that that took him a while and that, you know, even even in those final sets, I mean, he and I talked about this when he was doing Weapons of Self-Destruction, that he still felt personally like he wasn't giving audiences everything that he could and still kind of thinking to himself, well, how how much more open and honest can I be with people? Well, among the surprises in the book is the critical drubbing he tended to receive every time <laughs> he did Anything. He had this uh, sort of surprising and remarkable success with Mork and Mindy, this TV show that meant a lot to people like me even. You know, I'm I'm 40, so I'm just uh-huh. on the other side of... I watched it. I remember watching it. I remember it being on TV and being kind of intrigued by it, but probably didn't really process everything that was going on. And then he, the show petered out due to network meddling and, and whatnot, as you outline in the book. <laughs> and, and, you know, maybe just taste changing and whatnot. But yeah. then he had ended up in this stretch where until about 87 or so in Good Morning Vietnam, people didn't think he had it. People thought yeah. he was done. And from that point forward, it seemed like even with something like Goodwill Hunting, which was, I thought, in my re- memory, was universally acclaimed, critics really went after him. And I, I assume this deeply affected him as a sensitive guy, right? 
Oh, yeah. I mean, he I think he definitely internalized a lot of the critical reviews that he received throughout his career. And I think, you know, a a good artist, certainly a good uh, Hollywood actor. I mean, I think they're all aware to a certain degree of how they're perceived and trying to position themselves accordingly. But I think I think in his case, you can safely say that he was probably too closely attuned to it at times, cared uh, a little too much about that. And I mean, it did have an effect in the sense that, uh, you know, in terms of what was what was made available to him, what work he could do or could get. And I think he, he also had a very good streak of both finding roles and also also cultivating material for himself or surrounding himself with people who could help shape those roles. And part of why Good Morning Vietnam was such a success is that that was uh, a film that was essentially uh, developed for him as something where he could be both uh, improvisational at times in the sort of DJ booth scenes, but it also had a kind of uh, quiet, dramatic uh, aspect to it. And then going on from there to something like Dead Poet Society and then movies like uh, Awakenings and The Fisher King and even into Aladdin uh, is really an incredible run. Uh, but you're right that there was a kind of, on his part, I think a kind of vacillation between, uh, you know, sometimes these very broad comedic roles and then the more sort of uh, introspective, dramatic roles. And he often got dinged for, uh, you know, playing these, what were, you know, dismissed sometimes as kind of treacly characters, characters that were very, sensitive and emotional and and they often appeal to him i mean that was that was true to who he was and he could empathize with people like that but i think at a certain point in his career uh that balance got upset that there were uh you know maybe too many of the too many roles in either extreme and Mm. and none that were starting to find either critical success or commercial success and that uh you know certainly he became aware that you know people weren't happy with the work that they that he was doing or he began to feel like he was letting people down by not delivering at the sort of level that they knew he was capable of but dave do you find that critics mistrust dynamics like mistrust change mistrust an artist branching out as sort of some sort of betrayal of a a core that they perceive like this comedian thinks he's an actor this serious actor thinks he can be in i don't know flubber or whatever it was like there seems to be like i mean honestly there are some bad he made some bad choices oh yeah for sure no there's no question i don't think you know it's it's certainly not you know it's it's not solely the fault of uh you know it's 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 not simply that people didn't appreciate the work that he was doing i think i think there are good sort of diamonds in the rough in the earlier part of his career i think movies like uh, moscow on the hudson and and even a, a film that he made called uh, seize the day, which is not nothing to do with Dead Poets Society. It's <laughs> the Saul Bellow novel. Yeah, uh, those are those are really quite good and and maybe underappreciated. You're right that the the later films that are dismissed as bad, uh, yeah, some of them are genuinely bad. Uh, he was going through right. he was going through divorces. He needed money. I mean, that's. Uh... Hold up! What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 
Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Well, I think when you, yeah, I think that when you operate certainly at the level that he did just commercially, then there is a kind of, uh, it does put an onus on you that you have to, basically every year or every year to two years, you have to be in a kind of big, studio movie with the paycheck that that brings and sometimes you're kind of stuck with uh the best if this is the best thing that you can get at that pay grade that's the movie you've got to make uh and that that eventually you know bit him one too many times uh and i but i think you're right that the sort of the broader uh you know the 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 sense that uh, both sometimes audiences and critics weren't always willing to uh, you know, look beyond the way that he was pigeonholed. Uh, certainly, the perception that okay, he's a, you know, this is this is a comedian who is trying to be taken seriously. That that uh, even though he didn't see himself that way, that 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 perception uh, certainly became calcified, and that was very hard for him uh, to push back against. Yeah, no, that that's fair. Now you you've spoken to many many people, obviously, for this book, and among them are heroes of mine like David Letterman did you get any deep revelations I mean they're, they're obviously I'm sure they're in the book but was there anything that anyone uh, sort of uh, out, sort of outside of his orbit or who knew him on some level but maybe didn't quite know him did anyone surprise you with anything they imparted to you I think they were all they were all very interesting conversations I mean certainly somebody like Letterman for example, who, uh, you know, he and Robin were represented by the same uh, managers at the start of their uh, careers, uh, the same managers who would represent both Robin and Billy Crystal pretty much all through their lives. Uh, Letterman came to L.A. Uh, more or less at the same time that Robin broke through. So, you know, they're both trying to, uh, you know, make their bones as as uh, stand-ups at around the same time. And it was so interesting that I think Letterman was genuinely intimidated by Robin when he was first coming in in the sense that Letterman felt like he was the kind of guy who just did a very kind of traditional stand-up routine and he's seeing Robin come in with all this dynamism and energy and feeling like, uh, if this is what stand-up is going to turn into, then I can't hack it. And and Letterman even talked about almost this kind of masochistic, uh, you know, uh, tendency on his own part to keep going back to Robin's shows and then coming out the other end and feeling like I just can't do what this guy does and kept going back and wanting to see more of it. And it was a really interesting thing. Uh, you know, they remained good friends and Robin was always, you know, anytime he turned up on Letterman's uh, late night shows, I mean, they were always fantastic appearances. So just an interesting relationship the two of them developed. Now, you you cover comedy and pop culture for The New York Times. That's correct? That's right. Yes. Right. Yeah. And, and I, I will say, I mean, you've become on Twitter, something of a comedic force yourself. I, I know you... <laughs> well, you're nice to say. You might blanch at this, but I think a lot of people feel that way. You, you're you're very funny. Uh, but I, I want to figure that out for a moment. How did you uh, get into comedy and uh, writing about comedy, <laughs> per se? Well, I, th- I think that that is just something that goes back to my own adolescence, I think. I, I mean, I have very... Uh, warm memories of things like, uh, you know, certainly we were talking about Letterman before. I mean, watching his uh, 
you know, the end of his run on NBC, the start of his show on CBS, that's very vivid for me. Mm-hmm. The sort of late 80s, early 90s era of Saturday Night Live. So the uh, Dana Carvey into Mike Myers uh, years, those those are uh, very potent for me. Certainly the uh, the first few seasons of The Simpsons, uh, all, um, all of that was uh, very uh, defining for me. Just things that, uh, you know... Shows that I really treasured and felt like uh, really spoke to me in a specific way at a certain time in my life. And then, and, and, you know, getting to write for The Times especially, but other other publications as well, that uh, it was just, you know, there was a lot of opportunity to write about the personalities on those programs, the developments that were taking place behind the scenes. Uh, they've just kind of gone hand in hand. It's, it's certainly... Uh, one of the great thrills of my job that I get to write about things that I think I'm genuinely interested in and 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 care about or have a kind of just an internal feel for. Well, it sounds like you and I have a similar trajectory in terms of cultural consumption, comedy consumption, <laughs> except except you're successful. Uh, that's oh. no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, no, I'm just no. kidding. Uh, no, so you, uh, one of the things that I marvel at uh, about your your Twitter feed is. I assume at some point in your desktop, you must have a folder of just Simpsons related <laughs> images that seem to be relevant for any occasion. Because often, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, that seems to be a go to for you. You can seem to whatever's going on in news in the world. You seem to be able to find a, a corollary on an episode of The Simpsons. Is that is that an, an, an accurate assessment? Well, I just I it, it's more a reflection of how much time I still spend thinking about The Simpsons and how I think the, a lot of those bits and punchlines and set pieces from that show are just like, you know, at this point, like just encoded in my DNA. I've just like played them out in my mind so many times and watched those uh, shows so often. But I think we're also living through a particular time where uh, the sensibility of those shows and the, the uh, their underlying messages, I think, are especially uh, relevant. So, uh I guess it's all, you know, they, they, all that has just kind of dovetailed in a certain way that's, uh, I guess, at least, you know, useful on, on social media and, and nowhere else. Well, speaking of The Simpsons, there was a, a, an excerpt from your book uh, about Robin Williams that sort of made the rounds. It was Pam Dauber talking about his behavior on the set as, as being kind of grabby and uh, uh, being a little overbearing uh, in, in modern terms. She sort of said, you know, he'd grab my body parts, and I was okay with it. That's just how we got along. The Simpsons, too, uh, one of the, the great barometers of society and sure. culture is now being hammered for cultural ins- insensitivity. Can you talk about that from your perspective? What's going on? Because I think comedy is in a strange spot on some level. Yeah. You know, I, yeah. I think on one level, everyone thinks they're funny, which is wrong. Uh, <laughs> I think... Uh, some people will try to put things across that are clearly offensive, but under the guise of a joke. And, uh, and you know, we've got it now where a guy in the White House is attacking by name comedians. So I just wonder, as a, as a someone who observes comedy and is seeing all of this stuff going on where satire is under attack for being insensitive, like... And, and like I say, Robin was among the people named in this, you know, in, yeah. posthumously. What do you make of what's going on? Well, I think, respectfully, I think that these are maybe two different things. I think, I think in the case of Robin and what Pam Dauber was talking about in that scenario, 
you know that that wasn't that wasn't what was happening on camera and that it was behind the scenes and and it certainly it isn't appropriate now and it really shouldn't have been appropriate then even if i understand why you know she and robin of course had uh, a real friendship they really uh, almost had a kind of sibling like relationship uh they were about the same age they had both grown up in in michigan uh and and so i understand why you know she might be somewhat uh forgiving of how he treated her in that sense but i think i think what he was doing there's still a kind of power dynamic uh that's taking place there that he was a a performer who was starting to come into uh his own stardom and and realized it on some level and the way that he treated her had something to do with well this is something i can do to you that you can't say no to because I'm the star of the show. And yeah. uh, I, I don't think that, that, you know, I don't think you can really deny that. And it's, it's certainly, you know, it, it, it doesn't seem to be systemic. I don't, I haven't heard from other, many other co-stars, for example, that also got treated the same way, but uh, had it been reversed, if it were a female uh, performer going around the show, grabbing men's crotches, that would not have been tolerated. Sure. Uh, but I think, I think what you're talking about with something like the Simpsons is, is, you know, that's a show that, uh, God bless it, has uh, you know been on the air for uh, you know twenty five plus years, and not that it doesn't still have something to say and isn't still uh, relevant in in a lot of ways, but it's also unprecedented that a show would be around that long, and it's inevitable that I think tastes change, our un- our own understanding of what is uh, appropriate or insensitive changes over time, and. Uh, a show has to be able to, or any kind of institution has to be able to uh, re-examine itself from time to time and with a critical eye and and be willing to adapt and change. And it's ultimately the choice of the people in charge of it to uh, make whatever decision they want to. But uh, comedy is not uh, immune to that. I think you know, there's any number of examples you can point to, of, you know, things that we thought were funny in a certain era uh, that just haven't aged well and things where we're seeing uh, things that weren't uh, appropriate or or weren't uh, uh, you know fair to to audiences at the time that that just don't uh, we we see it now and we kind of recoil at it. Well, and, and do you want to speak to my point about comedy a bit more generally? This this seems to be a whole like who can dish it, who can take it? Like it's a joke. You're sure. not taking the joke. Like or or well, or, comedy I, of course has always been a place where. You know, uh, the the very nature of it, I think, encourages people to say things that you couldn't say in any other forum. And it, but it, the audience also has a right to decide when it's uh, you know when when some kind of uh, you know norm has been uh, broached. And I I, th- I think that's just a, a sort of an on ongoing conversation we're having, often at a very high volume. Right yeah. Now. Yeah. But uh, you know, it's I think there's just they're just as I mean I think as you said at the sort of the start of this uh, train of thought I mean there's so many people participating in that sphere whether it's performers or audience members or people who are audience members who think that they're performers uh, but so so many people sort of uh, you know operating in in this arena right now that that we have to confront that question on a, a daily if not hourly basis of you know is this appropriate did it cross a line who gets to decide it's just it's just ongoing i can uh, and i can't think of another realm other than comedy that has been as affected by twitter like comedy and twitter seem intertwined i think so i mean it's certainly one of the, i mean one of the groups of people who i think helped popularized twitter were the 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 comedians comedians were one, you know among the people who kind of 
you know, colonized Twitter when it was still uh, somewhat of a novelty. It was a place to promote yourself and to kind of, you know, throw out jokes that were maybe still uh, in a kind of uh, nascent stage and kind of not not to work out a whole routine, but just throw out one liners, see if people respond to them. You get that kind of instant gratification of seeing a tweet take off if people really like it. So, of course, you know, uh, desperate narcissistic comedians are going to love that. Uh, <laughs> so it, 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 it makes sense that those are the kinds of people among the kinds of people who would really take well and adapt to, to social media. But you're right. It also kind of creates this perception. Uh, you know, it, it kind of, it certainly lowers the bar for entry, not necessarily in a bad way that other people who want to just throw out jokes all day and, and do it in a kind of, a, a less risky way there's no visible audience as far as you can tell you're not it's not you standing on a stage talking to a live crowd and hearing nothing if a joke bombs you can just press a button if the joke doesn't do well then you wait a little while and tweet another joke yeah i should walk back my comment about comedy being the most deeply affected sort of i, I guess cultural realm because obviously politics is probably the main thing that happens on Twitter. But then again, comedy and politics seem to be really intertwining on Twitter. Some of my funniest comedians are primarily tweeting political, uh, you know, commentary. (laughs) So it's fascinating. I know. The comedians turn political and now the politicians think that they're comedians. Exactly. Yes. It's very strange. It's a strange time. Well, back to this book, of course, uh, this book, Robin, I want to talk about uh, one of the the major revelations of this book for me was uh, about his final days. Um, sure. And the revelation, and again, I don't. It's a, a spoiler alert. I, I want people to read this book, but can you talk a little bit about the perception of why Robin chose to end his life? What you think, or what well, I guess even medical practitioners think, was actually going on there? Sure, sure. I, I certainly, in, in, you know, in in the immediate aftermath of his suicide, and in in the days, uh, the immediate days following, I mean, there just wasn't a lot of uh, tangible information, and I think that's it's understandable. It was a, a, a terrible shock and a tragedy to his family and to his loved ones, who, uh, in some ways, also didn't know entirely what was going on. It was not easy for them, I think, or or uh, they weren't immediately ready in some ways to to communicate with people and explain things uh so i think in in the vacuum of information people came to their own uh conclusions and formed their own hypotheses so people would think well uh you know he wasn't he wasn't happy with his life or with his career or he was having financial uh troubles and so that's why he uh chose to take his own life uh and then that seemed to be in some ways reinforced uh about a week after his death his widow uh, put out a statement saying that he had recently been diagnosed with uh, Parkinson's disease. And so I think a lot of people then uh, sort of made the conclusion, well, you know, he knew that this disease was going to be debilitating. And so, again, it was a choice that he made to uh, to kill himself. And uh, it wasn't until, you know, many months after his death when his autopsy was completed uh, in, in, in his autopsy, uh, you know, they analyzed portions of his brain tissue and found uh, evidence of, of what's called Lewy body disease or Lewy body dementia, which is, is similar to Parkinson's in, in some way. And I mean, it's factually true that he was given a diagnosis of Parkinson's mm-hmm. while he was alive. But uh, Lewy body is, it, it attacks not only the, the motor part of the brain, which is, you know, controls how you, you move and, and walk around, but it also attacks 
uh, parts of the brain that have to do with just uh, decision making, how you perceive uh, and receive information and perceive stimuli. And so, you know, people who have it, they can have really terrible uh, anxiety and paranoia. Some people have uh, hallucinations. Often they kind of seem to, uh, they'll have periods where they seem to just sort of shut down in their own body and that can go on for, uh, you know, minutes or hours. Uh, and so people who knew him in those last weeks and months, I mean, they all, you know, retrospectively describe seeing him go through things that seem to, you know, correspond to the symptoms of that disease. But, you know, again, even though some of his friends, uh, you know, they, some feel retrospectively, like they had interactions with him at the end of his life where they feel like, he was trying to sort of settle accounts with them. Yeah. He was trying to say goodbye in, in, in some way. And it's possible. And But it, it, it's also possible that, you know, it, it, at the end, he didn't he didn't fully know what he was doing or, you know, in a sense, know who he was. It could have, you know, you, the police reports, for example, don't, they, they searched his home computer. They didn't find uh, as you might in these cases, like Google searches of uh, methods of, of how one might end their life, but kind of the evidence of an ideation. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's hard. It's hard to know. We I, it's it's. I understand why people. I think in a situation like this, they would love the closure, the understanding of well, he did this because of this, and and that that answers the question. And we we may not ever totally know why why he did it, whether he was. It was something that he had, uh, he, whether he consciously understood something was happening to him and he wanted to sort of prevent a further, you know, debilitation or whether it was just a terrible impulse that he acted on. Yeah, it's a tragic, uh, obviously a tragic end. And there are no, like you say, there are no real answers to uh, an outcome like this one and nothing really satisfying. You just have to accept it and. And move along. And I think, um, I, as I recall, one of his children has a very astute sort of assessment of that. Like, you just have to accept this, that this is what it is. There's nothing you can do to change it. Yeah, I, th- I think it is. You know, it, it, I think a lot of people, you know, family as well as friends of his who, you know, ask themselves and probably continue to do so. What, what is there something that I could have done differently? Could I have been there for him in some way? It's understandable that for for people to feel some kind of uh, lingering uh, guilt and and I mean the reality with this with this disease of the Louis body is that it's progressive and degenerative it's not curable uh, it's it's at this point as far as I'm aware there's no sort of advanced way even to sort of detect it before yeah. the symptoms of the disease are are, are present so uh, you know it, it, you can sort of for people who have it, you can try to make their lives as comfortable as possible, but it's not, you know, otherwise, you know, uh, it's not like something you can treat or delay and, and people who have it experience it in all different ways. Yeah. Well, we're not doctors, Dave. So I, I think, yeah. uh, <laughs> I mean, it's a, yeah, I, I, like I say, I appreciate your research here and it is another of, of many uh, revelatory aspects of this book. Uh, just, for uh, in conclusion like what do you ultimately hope people take away from this book about robin it feels like a really comprehensive and complete picture of of a man uh, i assume that was your objective to try to present his story as clearly as possible but what do you hope people readers take away from it 
I, I think you've summarized it very well, and I appreciate that. And I, I hope that what people gain is a kind of, uh, you know, an understanding of the totality of his life and career, why, how they were interwoven and, and why the work that he did was so important to him. And also, uh, you know, I think, I think the real uh, pleasure and joy that he got out of entertaining other people, why that was so yeah. uh, important to him and, and, uh, and really just a, a respect and a remembrance for the work that he did that was so good and, and why we were all so uh, impressed and, and uh, you know, why we, why we still sort of hold it dear. Yeah, it's given me a new appreciation for him. I, I have to say there are very few actors that I can think of who – Whatever their role is, I'll go. I'll want to see the film. I often, I think my compulsion is a director puts out a film. I'll go see that director's film. I don't know. Do you have that? Do you do you follow certain actors? <laughs> I think I used to. It's interesting because I think we're in an era now where that's, uh, you know, I think films certainly, you know, uh, films for mass audiences are less about the performers or even the the, the artists involved and more about the. Uh, the franchise yeah. or the, the licensed character underneath it all. But occasionally it, it's, it's, it's harder. If, if you, you know, if you were to ask me right now to name my favorite actor, I would have to probably, I'd have to take a moment to think about it. I don't know if I, in terms of somebody working, I mean, they're tremendously talented people out there, but in terms of thinking about following a career in the way that I think I, I used to certainly in, in, uh, you know, in my teens and twenties, I don't know if I approach uh, cinema in quite the same way right now. Yeah, me neither. I, I just, I know there's, if a musician I like puts out a record, I'll check it out. If a comedian puts out a special, I'll check it out. Yeah, but right. it's just an interesting relationship we've just developed with films. I don't know what's going on because I was a mass. I would go to movies all the time, and I just don't go as much because uh, they're overpriced and not as good as they used to be. <laughs> I may speak generally, but anyway, it's it's all all this to say it's renewed my appreciation of Robin Williams. It's a it's a oh, great. wonderful book. Where can people learn more about this book? Uh, it is pretty much, uh, I believe, anywhere that uh, books are available to be uh, to be <laughs> purchased in. Uh, in Northern American uh, locations and cer- certainly on the internet. Yeah, and people can, if they want to go online right now, henryholt.com, I believe, is uh, a good destination, right? Yeah, and uh, the macmillan.com, that's the sort of umbrella, the, the, the publisher that owns uh, the Henry Holt Im- imprint, uh, macmillan.com, I think, will have it right. uh, as well. And it's obviously on all your, you can, yeah, people can find it on all. Did you do a, like an audible? Did you do an audio book for this? Yes, I I, I only read the uh, the introduction, the prologue, and the uh, the epilogue. But there is a, a, an audio version on Audible and uh, on audio CD. Okay, cool. And what about you? What's next for you? Uh, well, I, I as I mentioned at the start, I have a son now who's three. He was born during the uh, the, the writing and uh, research process for this book. So I'm looking forward to uh, spending a lot more time with him. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. That makes sense. And you'll just tend to your uh, illustrious career as a as a New York Times writer and a Twitterer. Is that fair? Yes. Right. No, no, sure. book, no books on the horizon at this point. No, no. I, I'd like to keep it that way at least for a little while. Okay. All right. And where can people learn more about you? Where could I, we obviously I mentioned your Twitter. Where, how, how yeah, do... that's the best. That's the best place for me. That's uh, you know, uh, Twitter uh, at D Itzkoff. D. Itzkoff. All right. Well, Dave, this was a tremendous uh, pleasure to have you on on this oh, show and to talk about uh, Robin. I hope you enjoyed yourself, and I, I wish you the I best did. of luck with everything. Thanks so much, and thanks for your interest in, in me and the book. Uh, 
Special thanks again to Dave Itzkoff for being on this, the 402nd episode of Creative Control, to talk about uh, Robin Williams and this great new book, Robin. Thank you, Dave. It, it means a lot. If you're new to Creative Control, it's part of the Entertainment One podcast network, and it's available on all iOS and Android platforms, and also on things like Spotify and YouTube and Audio Boom as well. If you can't find an episode that you're looking for for some reason, or if you wish to learn more about me and sign up for my regularly scheduled newsletter, please visit my website, vishkana.com. That's V-I-S-H-K-H-A-N-N-A. Com. You can like Creative Control on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at Vish Creative, or follow me at Vish Khanna. You can listen to a radio show version of Creative Control on Wednesdays at noon Eastern Standard Time, around the world at CFRU.ca, or on an actual radio at 93.3 FM if you're in or near Guelph. Also, please consider visiting Patreon.com slash Creative Control to make a flexible monthly donation to keep this podcast going, and if I can send you a t-shirt... Uh, that uh, bears the uh, show's logo on it or something, let me know. Send me a note in Patreon, and I'll figure out if I can get you a gift of some kind. Thanks again to uh, the in-kind support the show receives from people like Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf, Planet Bean Coffee, Granddad's Donuts, and Planet of Sound. And thanks, too, to Jim Guthrie for letting me use the instrumental version of his song, The Rest Is Yet to Come, to end this show each week. Visit jimguthrie.org for more information about Jim. And last but not least, thank you for listening to this show, downloading episodes, reviewing and rating it positively and all those things, and, and just spreading the word about it. Please tell your friends about Creative Control. I want this show to be heard by your friends. You seem like a good person. What about your friends? Are they good? They probably would like this show. Tell them about the show, please. Okay? Thank you. That's it for me. I will talk to you very soon. Read this book. David Scott's Robin Williams book is fantastic. Read this book. Bye for now. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.